Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're continuing um, this recurring series of becoming the praying church. The praying church. This morning we're going to dive right back into the Sermon on the Mount, which it is the central, most formative teaching of Jesus for the church on prayer, as well as uh, all kinds of aspects of being kingdom people. Now, this kingdom, when we talk about the kingdom, we talked about that a lot in this church, the kingdom, because this is what Jesus came to teach about. And so we're continuing that. We're talking about this kingdom that he announced, that he said, it's here and it's coming. It's already and it's not yet. He spent his entire ministry announcing this kingdom, and it turned out to be this thing that was very different, uh, completely opposite, really, of how most people in his day thought a royal kingdom would look like, or a kingdom of power, what it should look like, or a kingdom that was super religious, even, what it would look like. Because this kingdom that Jesus talks about and he announces, this kingdom shows up and is actually relevant in our everyday life. Now, think about that. That's That's not typical for a kingdom to be relevant in our everyday life. Normal earthly kingdoms, if we just think about, you know, we don't have a kingdom. uh, We don't don't have a king here in America. Um, But, you know, the the normal kingdoms that we know about, uh, they may look impressive. They may be powerful and glamorous. There's powerful kingdoms. Um, But they have usually very little uh, literal uh, relevance to your everyday life. Uh, this, you know, in the past couple of weeks, a lot of people turned on the television, looked at the royal funeral that happened in the UK, uh, the passing of Queen Elizabeth, and all that is is it's very uh, moving for some people. You know, it's just it's full of of, of just meaning and pomp, and and uh, we can see that. Or you know, or years ago, you know, those royal weddings, and some people just like really hang on that stuff. You know, it's it's beautiful, and they really follow every single little detail of the royal lives, or something like that. Or the some people follow the latest gossip in American royalty, which is uh, kind of the role that Hollywood. Uh, celebrities play. That's our American royalty. But you notice none of it really impacts our life. None of it impacts the life of normal people like you and me. The kingdom of God is very different because the kingdom of God is not just something that's, you know, high on a hill surrounded by a wall and a moat or something. It's not off in a palace that no one's allowed to enter into. It's not something that's taking place in Hollywood or London or wherever. The kingdom of God is present right here, right now in the dust and dirt of our lives. And because of that, the kingdom, this kingdom, when you experience it, it's a lot messier than uh, most religious folks would wish it were, right? Often in the church, uh, we don't like messes. We want to clean up messes. So we want the church to be not messy. And, uh, and in the process, what we can do is end up turning the church into sort of like a dentist office. It's very sterile. It's a place that's not messy and everything's in, its, in order in its place. And the reality is we are dealing with a God who chose to be born in a barn with animals, right, all around. And this God walked the dusty country, unpaved countryside with, with, uh, with fishermen. He was followed by crowds and sinners and lepers and peasants. And today he still chooses to be active in this chaotic roller coaster of our lives. And that's the kingdom. That's the reality of the kingdom that we live in. And one way this kingdom makes a very huge difference in our life as, as kingdom citizens is in the area of prayer. 
Now, outside the kingdom of God, prayer is, it's one of two things. It's either non-existent, because you don't believe there is a God to pray to, um, or who wants to be in our lives, uh, or prayer is uh, performative. It's about performance, this act of religious duty uh, rather than devotion. It's something, prayer is often for some folks, it's just something to keep God off your back. Or it's something you do to appear uh, that you're really special in front of other people, that you're very holy and pious. And Jesus comes along in this Sermon on the Mount, right here, it's just the pivot point of the entire Bible. And he turns all of this on its head and he reveals this life of prayer that is completely just revolutionary. It's prayer that's it's not about your public acts of piety. And it's not about keeping God from smiting you either. Uh, it's neither performance nor penance. Rather, Jesus invites us into a prayer life that flows from this authentic cry of the heart. A heart that, that wants to connect with the God who loves us. That is what our prayers should flow from. And this teaching that Jesus is giving to folks, uh, just like us, who want to follow him, it's unexpected to the people of his day. And it requires us to really rethink what uh, many of us, just our natural religious minds, want to think about what prayer is all about. So I want us to look at today at what Christ has to say about how not to pray. Because Jesus is brilliant, and sometimes the greatest truths he gives us is in what not to do. So that's today we're going to talk about how not to pray. And we start in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. He says this, when you pray, now, when you pray, notice he, he didn't say, if you decide to pray. No, he says, when you pray. So he is assuming his disciples are having regular times of prayer. And, and you know, regular prayer uh, can happen anytime, anywhere. It can, it's not just the time you set aside uh, to just pray, but it's also the praying you do in your car. It's the praying you do dressing, the praying you can do at your desk, at work, grading math papers. You know, it's, 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 it can be the, the prayer that is always going on at school, between classes. Um, it's developing a lifestyle of prayer. It's that's, you know, praying without ceasing is that lifestyle of prayer. It's learning not to waste any of the precious moments that we have uh, in, in our day. Those moments add up to hours and they add up to days that God wants to be involved in our everyday life. What tends to happen with, with you and me is that we get so consumed by the day. We just get consumed by everyday life, don't we? Uh, the day-to-day the, the -day rhythms of life. And what suffers usually is our prayer life. Because let's face it, that's the easiest thing to let slide. When you've got a lot going on, the prayer life is the easiest thing. And I'm talking from experience. That's the easiest thing to let slide, right? Uh, because nobody knows we've neglected it except for God, right? There's not like a big terrible red X above our heads that everybody's going to see because I didn't get my prayers in today. But I promise you, if we ever get a revelation of the true power of prayer, if you ever get a revelation of prayer, you will wonder how you ever lived your life without it. Because the truth is, prayer is essential. Prayer is powerful. It is the cornerstone of life. Uh, without prayer, we may be alive, but we're not really living. It's like living without prayer is kind of like eating Fritos all day long, right? It, it, you might be getting full, but you're not eating anything nourishing, right? You're being filled, but you're never fulfilled. 
and, and prayer is the fuel for life. Uh, neglecting a prayer is kind of like skipping the gas pump. Anybody ever said, uh, I can get a few more miles out of this tank? And you skip the gas pump and you just keep going because you got to get somewhere maybe as fast as possible, right? And, and no time for gas. I'm in a hurry. I got to get to work. It's very, you know, I got to get there immediately. Uh, I saw a thing uh, years ago on uh, NASCAR and they were interviewing these famous NASCAR drivers, which I don't really follow, so I didn't know any of their names, but they seem to be famous. Uh, but they were interviewing them and they said the biggest rookie mistake of race car drivers when they get on the circuit, it isn't crashing, it's skipping the last pit stop so towards the end of the race. That's the biggest rookie mistake. Skipping that last pit stop. No time. No time for gas. I got to finish the race. I got to get... And then they run out. So prayer is the one thing. When things are at their most stressful, when they're at their most busiest, it's the one thing we cannot do without. And the number one reason so many Christians don't have a significant life of prayer, it's not because we don't want to, usually. It's not because we don't want to be a person who prays, or, or and it's usually not even because we don't know how to, but it's usually because we don't plan to. We don't plan to. Prayer does not happen by accident. And I think most of us could attest to the truth of this, right? You can't wait. If you say, I'm going to have a daily time of prayer. I'm going to do this every day. And you can't wait uh, un until prayer time suddenly becomes available during the day, can you? It's never a good time to pray, right? Believe me, it, it will never, ever happen. But that's how many of us treat prayer. We know having a dedicated time of prayer it ought to be part of our life. We know it should be, but it's never a good time. And you know what? There's never a good place to do it. You ever notice that? Like, well, if I just had like my own little chapel in my house, I could, I could go and, you know, I, then I would do it. But there's never a good place to do it. And we never, we never plan out ahead of time sometimes what, we would, what we're actually going to pray when we get there. If wherever we do find ourselves with time and a place, suddenly we don't, we don't really know what to say. Then it takes planning, planning to get ourselves out of the rut of our own schedules. Now that seems counterintuitive because a lot of people think planning is the enemy of spontaneity, but it's really not. It's not true. The opposite of planning, do you know what the opposite of planning is? The rut. If you don't plan, you stay in the rut. Uh, if, if, if you don't plan a vacation, do you know what you're going to do? You're going to stay home and do the same old, same old routine. If I don't plan a night out with my wife, you know, going out time, uh, we're going to spend the evening with the kids watching TV. That's just, you know, it's the rut. If you don't plan, then you're not creating opportunities for the spontaneity. So if you want renewal in your prayer life, you have to plan for it. You have to make it intentional, right? And so if, if, you know, if you were just making yourself a list, you know, Scott's little list of things to do to start having a prayer life, that's number one. Plan for it. It's not going to happen accidentally because Jesus says when you pray, when you pray, he expects us to do it. He goes on, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Well, that's a nice word to call people. Think, way, way to go, Jesus. That's really sweet. But Jesus, you know, he's kind of okay with bugging people. Did you ever notice that? He, he doesn't mind bugging people. And so he says, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. And Jesus could be kind of poking at two different kinds of people here, um, this word hypocrite. In his day, 
you might know this already, but a hypocrite referred, the literal meaning, referred to an actor. Uh, you, can, you know, you remember, you see those old Roman amphitheaters and the actors would stand down at the bottom and everybody else was all around. And the actors would wear a huge mask to, to you know, express like what kind of character they were or their emotion in the moment. Because you can remember the old amphitheaters, it's a long time ago, there's no like camera and you can't see on a screen the, their facial expressions. They're a long way off. And so to let you know from, you know, the guys in the back row, this is a sad person. He has a big sad mask on. Or if he's happy, he's got a happy mask. Or if he's evil, he's got the evil mask. You know, he's got, he's got that mask. So they wore these masks. So they were called hypocrites. That was just what they, what they were. They, they wore these masks. The actors did. We think of a hypocrite today as uh, someone who's hiding their true self behind a false self. And it was used that way in Jesus' day too. They're being deceptive. They say one thing, but they do another. He used that word sometimes in some of his teachings. But other times in his teachings, he uses it in a different way. There's another way that Jesus seems to be using the word in this context, and it is in the context of being uh, of performance. Performance. Instead, the, the performance aspect of praying. Here, Jesus says they're hypocrites, not because they're really trying to hide something, but because they're like actors stepping on a stage. There's something about the praying that they just, these, you know, these folks just really get high on, right? And he says, truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. They've received the reward in full. <clears throat> in other words, if you pray to get applause, then congratulations. You're going to get really good at it, and you'll probably get it. People will be impressed, and, and they'll find you very pious, and they'll find you very holy, but you know what? He's saying that's as beneficial as your prayers will be. That's as much benefit as you're going to get, because they don't impress God. And he goes on, <clears throat> when you pray, there again, when you pray, go into your room or inner room here. It's a specific word he used here in the original language. It talks about an inner room. It's literally a secret or inner chamber of the house. It was typically the smallest room in the house, usually like a storage they would use for storage. It was located often in the center of the house. It had no windows around it because it was kind of like, we would say, a closet. Um, and that's where the, the term prayer closet or something comes from. And he says, and go in there and close the door, pray to your father who is unseen, and then your father who is seen, who sees what is, what is done in secret, will reward you. So Jesus is saying here that uh, to go into this, this inner room to pray. Now, is Jesus saying that we always have to pray alone? Because, I mean, how many people can you fit in a closet? You know, not more than just one or two here. Well, what about when it's Sunday morning? Are we praying here together? Or what about if you're in your home life group and you're all getting in a circle and you're all praying together? Are we disobeying Jesus? You know, when he says to pray here, to pray alone. And just to really confuse us royally, there are other places where he talks about two or three coming together to, to agree on something specifically to pray, right? The New Testament church was all about praying together in community. So what is Jesus saying here? It would be important for us to understand why is Jesus saying this. What's interesting is, is there's a kind of play on words he's using. He uses the word seen or see as a reward. So there can be a motivation uh, that people pray just so, so other people will think they're really spiritual. Have you ever noticed uh, if you pray in a group, you pray a little bit differently than you do when you're by yourself? Anybody else do that? Um, 
You ever been in a prayer circle with folks and everybody's taking turns and you're thinking, oh man, it's going to be my turn. I better kind of prepare what I'm going to say. What am I going to say? Okay, so I could really, um, I'm going to start with that introduction. Maybe I'll go into this convocation. Maybe I could start with some praise, segue into like a prayer for the world. That'll be good, right? And you're not really communing with the Lord, you know, in, in fellowship with your brothers and sisters. You're thinking about all this stuff. And then all of a sudden crumbs, it's my turn. Okay, boom. And you got to pray. There's like this pressure, right? Anybody else? Am I the only like worldly person here? Yes. There's this pressure. I got to like, I got, you know, I got to make it happen. I got to make it happen, Captain. And you got to sound pretty good. And particularly if you're uh, praying and you hear the group around you, like start to get into it. Like if you're praying and you hear people going, yes, Jesus. And you're like, oh, okay. And you hear, you know, sometimes you just hear the little, mm, 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 mm. And you're thinking, man, whatever I'm saying is doing it for him. This is good. This is good. You know, and there's this like pressure to sound like you know what you're doing. Because you don't want to be the guy that comes to you and you're just like, Lord, uh, everything stinks. Make it better. <laughs> Amen. Because then, you know, you're afraid everybody's going to be like, what was that? He's really messing up the vibe in the room. Nobody wants to be that guy, right? So here's the thing. If your prayer life, where, if your primary prayer life, where you start your day, is happening in that private place, away from everyone else, no one watching, that's where you experience the genuineness of God in that beautiful place. And, and it's your soul and God's spirit spending time together. And that feeds you. And, and then that should be the feeling that surrounds you and grounds you and what real prayer is about, right? In those moments, then what happens is you can take that to pray in healthy ways in the presence of other people. We can pray in community with other people. Because we've started from a very genuine place. So Jesus says here that the corrective to, you know, the corrective move to, to performance-driven prayers is to develop our private prayer life. Jesus is offering us a very practical corrective. Isn't that beautiful? To make that the primary locus from which we, we pray, where it's just you and the Holy Spirit. It's just you and the Holy Spirit. So then, when you get in the presence of other people, you know what it feels like to just talk to God. You're not praying to talk, you know, so other people can hear you and be impressed. And I understand this. I, I used to feel a lot of anxiety when it was time to like pray in front of people. It was like, oh, oh man, I gotta, I gotta like up it, you know, I gotta up my prayer game. And the more I just, I just started spending time with God in personal prayer, the more the other thing wasn't a big deal, right? Because now we're just praying in community. And the interesting thing is this. Jesus says, go into your inner room. And do you know he's never recorded in the Gospels as going into an inner room of the house to pray by himself? He never locks himself in a closet. So he's not speaking in some, he's not speaking a literal command here. Find a inner room of your house with no doors or windows, you know, with no windows, go in there. How did Jesus live this out? What is the principle he lived this out? Where was his private place? Well, we see from a lot of scriptures he would go to the mountaintop to pray. It says in the Gospels that he would uh, often go out into the wilderness to pray, and he would find places of seclusion. And, you know, because Jesus prayed with his disciples, but he also knew anytime he was praying to God, they were going to be hanging on every word, right? And so there was that. And so even Jesus was like, I need that time where it's just me and the Father, where I'm not also thinking about them hanging on my every word here, where I could just go get real with God, right? Get real with the Father. Jesus needed that too. That was his small room. 
the outside, the, the woods, the, the wilderness, the mountaintop. So you literally don't have to lock yourself in a closet. You can, if you have noisy kids like we do, sometimes the closet works really good. Um, a lot of times the kids will be running all over the house and I can tell they're looking for Mel and they'll run in, where's mom? And I'm like, she's in the closet. Don't go in there, right? And I know what she's doing. That's her, she, she literally has to. Um, notice what else Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, so when you pray, go to the temple. Go to the holy place when you pray. Go to the synagogue, right? Go to the holy auditorium. He doesn't say any of that, do you? He doesn't say go to church. Why? Because you and I are the temple. We are the temple. There is no more sacred space on this earth than wherever you and the Lord are in communion. Do you realize that? that? That is the most sacred space on earth, wherever you and the Lord are in communion. So Jesus is saying that he knows what's going on in your heart and stressing out about making your prayer sound really good to other people is not the goal. Getting the crowd to go, mm, yes, Jesus, oh, yeah, what he's saying. That's, that's really not the goal. What, uh, what else does he, he goes on in verse 7. Let's look. And when you pray, look at how often he's saying this. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard for their many words. I was excited to study out this verse because this is a verse that uh, in the past has really confused me. And it has thrown a lot of people for a loop, created a lot of controversy. It mostly centers around this phrase, babbling like pagans. And uh, I've noticed a lot of folks have tried different interpretations to see, uh, to say that Jesus is speaking against uh, some custom of praying or this custom. There's folks in, even in the uh, Christian circles called cessationists, if you know that word. Uh, those are people who, the groups who believe that the gifts of the Spirit uh, are all done away with. They're all, they're all sort of like finished. Uh, so they believe they have ceased. That's why they're called cessationists. And um, they say that this is a prohibition against speaking in tongues like the charismatics do because because you know speaking in tongues might sound like babbling and and well that it's wrong on so many levels but nowhere else first of all nowhere else is tongues in the bible referred to as babbling nowhere else and uh it wouldn't make any sense because speaking in tongues had not yet even arrived on the scene for another probably two years when jesus says this pentecost is about two years in the future so this isn't talking about tongues and then I think just kind of to throw some, some religious mud back the other direction, a lot of evangelicals have claimed, well, this is Jesus warning us against praying set prayers or written prayers or ritualistic prayers like, like our friends maybe in more liturgical churches do. You know, since this is, Jesus said this, this is pretty crucial for us to know. So let's take a quick look at what Jesus is actually saying, shall we? Don't we want to know what he's really saying? This phrase, don't keep on babbling. Some of your other translations, if you have it open right there, it might say, don't heap up empty phrases. Uh, do not, a big one is don't use vain repetitions. Um, uh, one translation even says, do not speak much. Just it gets right to the point. Don't speak much. The challenge of this phrase is this, that the Greek, the whole phrase is one word in the Greek. It's uh, this word, batalageo, and uh, it, it's found nowhere else in the whole New Testament, the whole Bible. There's nowhere else where batalageo is used. And there's not even a whole lot of places in ancient Greek literature we can kind of look to to help us understand it. But this word is related to the Greek word batalos, which means uh, someone who stutters or someone who stammers. Batalos, someone who has a stammer. 
And so what Jesus, we see he's doing, he's using this word as a metaphor to describe the prayers of the Gentiles of his day. And we know he's using this term figuratively and not literally because in his day, pagans didn't literally stammer when they prayed to the gods. So he's using a metaphor, but what does the metaphor mean? Well, a very important clue, in fact, the real key to unpacking this is what Jesus goes on to say next. He says, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Do not be like them, meaning the pagan, because your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now that's interesting. Don't pray babbling, empty, stammering, because your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And there's our clue. The pagan gods, it was believed back then, they were limited. They weren't like, they they didn't view the pagan gods like we view... uh, the God. They believed that the pagan gods really didn't know what you needed until you actually came to the their temple and asked them for something. And when you did make a petition, you didn't even know if you were praying to exactly the right God for your particular need. So you had to kind of use a whole bunch of words to win them over. You know, if you needed like a good harvest, you didn't know to pray for the God of grain or the God of rain. So you just kind of had to you know, pray to all of them and really butter them up and use a lot of words in a very particular order. And so pagan prayers back then were were infamous for being these very long-winded, full of empty words that went on and on and on and really never really said much of anything. But they sort of sounded like someone stuttering, vain repetitions. And so what Jesus is concerned with here is not whether you literally have a stutter when you're talking, And he's also not concerned with whether you repeat a phrase when you pray. What he's concerned with is us having a false idea about God. What do you think about God? What is, how, how knowledgeable and understanding is the God that you serve, right? Whether God is like the pagan gods who don't really know you, and they probably don't really care that much about you, so you've got to really butter them up. The real God knows everything about you, he says. And he knows what you need even before you ask. And this God is merciful. And so you don't have to convince him by using lots of words. So that's what Jesus is concerned with here. It's a false view of God that a lot of people in the pagan world, and sad to say, today in the Christian world, have because we don't understand the nature of this loving God, the true God. We understand his Father's heart in fact, what's interesting is even if you, uh, you know, use the, like the translation, um, don't use vain repetitions. Well, what's very clear is that not all repetitions are vain, hence the qualifier, right? And what we know from what's written, in, we know this from what's written in the Bible itself. Uh, scripture's full of prayers that have been handed down over the years and were even repeated often, and repeated by Jesus himself. In the Bible, uh, God's people prayed the Psalms, even as many of us do today. They would pray the Psalms. And even Jesus prayed the Psalms on the cross. He quoted from the Psalms. In Psalm 136, is a beautiful Psalm. This is just a, a segment of it. It's traditionally sung at the end of the Passover meal. And so it's believed that it probably was prayed by Jesus at that last supper with his disciples, because this is what you would have prayed. What makes this psalm very unique is that all through it repeats this phrase, for his steadfast love endures forever. Almost after every line in the psalm is repeated this phrase, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, this is not a vain repetition. 
It's repeated 26 times. That's a lot of repetition. But the purpose of this repetition isn't to impress God, see, but rather to help mold and shape us. See, isn't that interesting? We repeat these phrases to mold and shape us. They're formative. We, call it, we say that's formative. It helps us remind us of God's faithfulness and, and his enduring love. We don't have to remind God. He already knows he's faithful and loving, right? But it's not vain and it's not empty any more than coming together like we did this morning and we sing a worship song over and over or we sing a phrase, right? You won't. You, your love will never fail. You'll never fail me now, right? We can see that over and over. It's not a vain repetition. These words help shape us. They express the inexpressible longing of our heart. Jewish people in uh, Jesus' day and, and the Orthodox Jews today prayed uh, the Shema prayer multiple times. They were, they were uh, expected to pray it at least three times a day. And Jesus never condemns the practice, never once. In fact, in one place, he calls the Shema the greatest command, to love the Lord your God, right? So he, he values this. At least two of the, the parables of Jesus actually hinge around the idea that we need to be persistent in our prayer. Uh, the, the parable of the unjust judge, if you remember that one, the parable of the friend who comes at night and bangs on his friend's door is like, give me some, I need some, you know, I need some help. Um, both of them have Jesus teaching us to engage in a form of spiritual repetition when it comes to our prayer life, in re-engagement, re-engagement. So while Jesus, he warns the Jewish people against praying just to be heard, he, he warns them against praying hypocritically with the wrong heart to show, you know, to be showy. He never says anything about them, actually, using the same prayers over and over again. So simply repeating, I'm just hoping this helps somebody here, uh, repeating a good, well-crafted prayer is not what vain repetition means. I'll tell you this, maybe the most confident reason we can have that this is not what Jesus is condemning is simply that he's simply condemning, uh, repeating a prayer? It's because what does he say in the very next breath, the very next verse? He says, this then is how you should pray. And he gives us one of the most repeated prayers of all times. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and so on. He teaches them the Lord's prayer, which the church has treasured and prayed and repeated for 2,000 years the Lord's Prayer. Now, we won't go into detail on this prayer today because um, we have taught on this before. It's in a, it was in a series called Conversations with God. If you're interested in kind of diving into the Lord's Prayer here, I encourage you to go check that out, that series. It's on the podcast or on the website from Conversations with God, a sermon called The Lord's Prayer. Um, I'll, let me offer this reminder, though, about the Lord's Prayer because this is uh, relevant for what we're talking about today. The Lord's Prayer is a... It is a model for prayer. It is a model for prayer. It offers us a structure uh, from which to pray from. Using our own words. We can use our own words through each of the phrases of the Lord's Prayer. So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We can use that as sort of the reminder and the signal to us to, to worship the Lord and, talk, and to just tell him how, how beautiful he is and how wonderful he is and how holy he is, right? So it's a model. It offers a structure that we can use to pray our own words going through the phrases. But never forget this. While the Lord's Prayer is more than just a, a prayer to be recited exactly, 
It is also not less than a perfect prayer to be prayed exactly as he gave us. Okay? And so that's, that's good to, for us to remember. So personally, while I use the Lord's Prayer every day uh, as an outline to pattern my own uh, daily prayers, I also pray the Lord's Prayer exactly as our Lord Jesus Christ gave it, exactly as he gave it to us. I pray that every single morning uh, in my daily prayers. So what turns a repetitional prayer or a pre-written prayer into a vain repetition is the posture of the heart. That's really what it comes down to it. What turns something into vanity is the posture of the heart. You know, you and I can sincerely say the Lord's Prayer that he gives us in the next breath. We can sincerely, or what the Catholics call the Our Father, this, this prayer, we can sincerely say it and mean every single word. Or we can mumble through it, you know, like we're just sort of singing a Beyonce song. And not really be thinking, you know, just going about our day, washing the dish, whatever it is. Um, like you can sing a worship song, right? We can sing worship songs uh, and along with everybody in the room and you can mean it or you can not mean it, right? The fact that you've repeated a course three times doesn't invalidate your sincerity. It doesn't prove that you really didn't mean it the first time, right? We're letting those words work on us. We're letting those words be formative to our souls. By the way, I'll just add this. I don't, I don't get too much into We're going to talk a little bit about this next week. Uh, but you can make an idol out of spontaneity. Did you know that? We, we, uh, I, we can tend to err on that side. We make an idol out of spontaneity. Uh, think of how often you hear somebody, maybe you're with somebody, and, uh, and they're praying, and they might be coming up with it really spontaneously, using a lot of like phrases that they've learned all their life, uh, but they're not actually saying anything of consequence. Do you ever like sit back and go, I don't really know what we just prayed, right? That was like a whole bunch of, whole bunch of words they came up with right there on the spot. Or, or worse, sometimes you walk away, I've done this, I've walked away, and I think, man, that was like really unscriptural. Um, Sounded really nice, but uh, that was, that was, I don't think that was biblical. Next week, we are going to take a look at some disciplines that we can learn to help us pray better prayers. I think it's going to be very interesting. I hope you're here. And not just say whatever pops into our head. Because it actually matters what you say. It does matter what we say. And there are powerful prayers. I'm just telling you, there are powerful prayers that have been offered by Christians for thousands of years. And just like the Lord's Prayer, you can repeat them mindlessly, totally in vain, out of just mindless habit, because it's like the thing you're supposed to do, or you can pray them with your whole heart. How many of you know, have you, have you ever, like, the, you can recite the 23rd Psalm for the thousandth time, and it still brings tears to your eyes? I, I, was, I was reading the 23rd Psalm, I think it was a funeral, not too long ago, I was reading it, and boom, it like hit me, I had to like hold it together. This Psalm that I have said so many times, it was like I was hearing it for the first time. It was so beautiful. Or you could spout it off without, like you're reciting your grocery list, right? So the point is we can make anything vain. You make anything vain. The choice is up to you. The difference is what's knowing, is knowing the character of God who hears your prayer, the one who knows what you need before you ask him. So today, when you look at this whole, when you look at this whole attitude of prayer, I want to, start kind of where we began this morning. Is it a religious duty for you? Do you look at like having that time of prayers just like the duty I got to do, I got to put in my, my holy 20 or whatever it is? Or is it the cry of, of someone who wants a relationship 
with Abba Father. Because when prayer connects relationally to God, your heart begins to transform from the inside out. And, and that's what's really, and that what is what really matters to God. Jesus is so brilliant in simply teaching us how to pray by laying out here how not to pray. Don't pray by accident. Don't try to pray by accident. It takes being intentional. It takes planning. Don't try to pray performative prayers that are all about impressing other people. Make your prayer life center around those authentic times that you have with God alone. Your heart bared before God. When you're going to say it and you're going to say it all wrong and it's just going to come out and God loves you just like your ki- you, you wouldn't blame your kid for coming to you with tears in their eyes and saying it all wrong. Prayer is not just an obligation. Don't, don't pray in meaningless empty words trying to get God to notice you or stay off your back. It's not an obligation. It's a reward. Do you know prayer is a reward for the child of God? It is time spent with our Abba Father who also happens to be the all-majestic creator of the entire known universe, right? And we get to spend time with him as father. It's our chance to sit at his feet and say, God, I, I want to be with you. I want to remind myself of who you are. And I want to realign my thoughts, my heart with your heart. The late French theologian Olivier Clement said this, the disposition we need to cultivate Even when care weighs heaviest, so even when times are tough, everything's weighing on you, everything is crowding out your day, is that of remembering that God exists and loves us. That's the simple truth right there. That is that he exists and loves us. That's really the gospel. And and this is from a, a former ardent atheist who converted to Christ. And he said that we are not alone, lost, ridiculous in presence of nothingness or horror but that there is another whom we may approach in union with Christ in him in the depths of our being. Come on. Or do you just come to God and say, here's my list of stuff I need because, you know, you're like Santa Claus. You're like the genie that's supposed to give me whatever I ask. That's not a relationship, is it? That's not a relationship. Relationship is God. I'll realign my heart with yours. Let me connect with you so I even know how to pray for the right things. So, when you leave here this week and you're thinking about praying, and I, and I pray that you're, you're taking this seriously and you're, you're really setting the attentional side, atten- intentionally setting aside time, I would challenge you to encourage you, take up Jesus on his model. If you need a place to start, that's the, a wonderful place to start right there. Here in Matthew 6, also in Luke 11, the Lord's Prayer Take Jesus up on his model. Because you know Jesus is pretty good at praying. I figure he knows what he's talking about. You can't do better than start there. And he prayed a whole lot. He knew how to connect with the Father. Begin in that place of worship. That's where he begins. To align your heart with God's kingdom. You align your heart with his. You start there and you see what blossoms in your daily prayer life. Amen. Let's pray together. God, Heavenly Father, we need you today. We need you to show up in our life, Lord God. We need you to cut through all the religious duty and all the dumb rules that we've created for ourselves. We need to come to you as kids, to your lap. We cry, Abba, Father. God, we realize today that you're not impressed with a bunch of noise or having just the right words. What you want is relationship. So God, we ask, would you come today 
and just break through our wall. Help us to be honest with you, Lord. For those who need to confess sin, that they could just shoot straight and just confess it, repent. And for those who need to forgive, Lord God, that you would just empower us with grace for others. And for all of us, Lord God, we pray that you would align our hearts with yours. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the God who loves us, who is bent toward us. May your kingdom come in our lives. Your will be done. Show up in the mess of this earth, Lord God. And we pray that you would come and shape us from the inside out by your spirit and with your love. In the holy name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning, we get to take part in a living act of prayer, which is communion. Which, you know, the church has been doing this for 2,000 years. Here's a prayer we have been repeating not in vain, for 2,000 years. You can be getting these elements ready if you have them with you. Um, When we take communion, we're remembering Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. The bread and the juice are tangible, visible reminders of, of Christ's love. And you know what's so cool is rather than just telling us, hey, remember... Jesus gave us a reminder. He gave us this. Just as we depend on food and drink every single day to live physically, we can only live spiritually through Christ. And this is our reminder of that. Communion is a time of just that, communing. It's a time to commune. So right there where you're at, we do this. This is both a highly personal thing and also a beautiful thing. family thing, a collective thing, that we are one body when we do this with Jesus. It's a chance to bring ourselves before the Lord and partake in the life he's given us through his death and resurrection today. Amen. Let me pray one more time over this. Merciful Father, we do not partake of this Lord's Supper, trusting in our own righteousness, but rather in your great mercies for all the ways that we've missed the mark, for what we've done, for what we've left undone, We humbly repent. Lord, without you we know we are unworthy to share in this holy act. But Lord, you have granted us sonship. You forgive our sins. You deliver us from unrighteousness. So we thank you, O God, that you've granted us the privilege to partake in this remembrance of the flesh and blood offered by your your son, Jesus Christ, so that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. And for this, We offer our eternal gratitude. Amen. Amen. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, stand to your feet, my friends. Our prayer partners are coming down uh, forward at this time to pray with you if there's anything in your life going on that you'd like someone to just stand with you in faith about. Where two or more are gathered, amazing things happen. God, Jesus said, he is right there in the midst of these things. And so come down, let them pray with you. Whatever's going on in your life, if you want to say yes to Jesus today for the first time and take that next right step, you don't have to have it all figured out. But if you just say, I want Jesus, I need Jesus, 
to show me, to give me guidance, to be my Lord, to, to help me live this life, the art of living. I need to know it. Jesus can lead you through that, and they, these guys can lead you in that prayer this morning. I encourage you to come do that. Amen? So my friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. And may you find today and all week long in your daily time alone with God, may you find the God who knows you and knows everything about you and loves you completely in Jesus' name. Grace and peace be with you. Bye-bye. Thank you, sir.